Hi, I'm Billy Shore. Welcome back to Add Passion and Stir. It's our weekly conversation about food, passion, and making a difference in the world. And today we have a guest I've wanted to have on for a long time, Danny Nirenberg, the co-founder of Food Tank, co-founder with Bernard Pollock. It's a think tank for food and does an amazing amount of global convening and research on the food system, holds food tank summits, explores global agricultural issues. Danny is a leader on all of these areas and the most recent recipient soon of the 2020 Julia Child Award, which is a really big deal. And she's got her own podcast. It's called Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. I've listened to many of them just in preparation for this, and you should too. It's really terrific. Danny, thank you so much for joining us. Oh my gosh. I'm so honored to be with you, Billy. Thanks so much for doing this. Danny, there's a bunch of things I want to talk to you about, but that are just kind of relevant to the moment that we're living in. But first, I just want to understand when did it start with you and food? <laughs> what was the what was the impulse and the idea and how long have you been you know, passionate about all things connected to food? Yeah, it started a long time ago about when I was 13 and became a vegetarian after reading Francis Moore Lappe's book, Diet for a Small Planet, and um, sort of making the connections in my head that she very eloquently made in the 1970s around how the environment and, and our food choices are, are connected. And, um, you know, I had found sort of a it, the the copy of her book at a, at a used bookstore and it was already you know dog-eared and it was just one of those things that made me really uh it spoke to me in a lot of different ways but I it probably didn't speak to my parents as much as it spoke to me I grew up in a, a really small town called Defiance Missouri and my parents were city people who you know moved to the country but I grew up around farmers and so I think my parents probably thought it was a phase that I'd, I'd sort of get over this and and do something else but uh, I didn't <laughs> so here we are and, and it feels like anybody who grew up in a place called Defiance Missouri could probably do anything they want to do in life right <laughs> I've sort of tried to, yeah. (laughs) Uh, But wait, so you're 13, you read the book, you've still got, you know, middle school ahead of you, high school ahead of you, (laughs) college ahead of you. I mean, did you really hang on to this food interest all that time? Yeah, writing has always been my thing. So I, I wrote some um, inflammatory articles for the my high school newspaper. I, I made up my own uh, major in college, which was around environmental policy and government. I didn't work for the college newspaper. I worked for the town newspaper. Again, a, a very small town in, in Illinois, a, a, the liberal arts college I went to was, you know, very progressive, but I, I was writing things for the town. Which school was it? Uh, Monmouth College. It's near the Quad Cities. And I wrote for the town newspaper and blamed farmers uh, for, you know, destroying the environment with cattle ranching and, and all of these things. And, you know, again, thought farmers were not the smartest people on earth. And right after college, like so many other naive 22 year olds, I, I went to Peace Corps and kind of had this epiphany as I was riding on the backs of motorcycles with extension workers visiting farmers who were doing incredible things like, you know, growing shade grown coffee and raising bees and doing all just all of this amazing work that I was the stupid one, not farmers. <laughs> and and so really the the connections between food, nutrition, the environment, social justice, all of this sort of came together for me in Peace Corps. Uh, it, you know, it, it took a while, but I, I finally was like, ah, oh, I get it now. So then I went to graduate school at the Friedman School of Nutrition Science and Policy at Tufts, 
and interned for a big think tank in Washington, D.C., and then made them hire me. And by the time I left there, I was the director of their food and agriculture program. Well, I wish we had known each other in high school because I was, as you were talking, I was going to ask you if you'd gone back and looked at some of your high school writing and how it held up. I was thinking about, I, I did a little bit of writing for my high school newspaper. And I remember I ran for student council president on a, a platform of things that had almost nothing to do with school. I ran on prison reform and, you know, housing rehabilitation and rehab and, you know, a whole set of kind of community issues. This was, of course, in the late 60s. I think I'm older than you are. Uh, so it was late 60s and during this kind of radical time. And I go back and I look at that stuff now and I scratch my head to think why anybody voted for me. I ended up becoming student council president, but it was really stuff that was like so far beyond school. And and some of it is cringeworthy and some of it is, you know, uh, turned out to be fairly predictive of what I would do with the rest of my life. So maybe the same for you. It, it is a little bit. It was the early 90s that I was writing about racism and, you know, censorship and all of these things. And I'm like, you know, it's, it, it's a little bit cringeworthy for sure to read all that. But I'm like, I'm still kind of the same person I was at 16. It's, it's interesting. <laughs> Uh, and what was the think tank that you worked with? I worked at the World Watch Institute, which if you had asked me when I was 16 where I wanted to work, I would have said the World Watch Institute because I was a huge nerd and an environmentalist. And it was started by my hero at that time and continues to be Lester Brown. My life is always a little bit surprising to me because I fulfilled a lot of the things that I've, I wanted to do. I, I've traveled the world. I worked at the World Watch Institute. You know, I, I did things that I thought of when I was, again, you know, a teenager. So it's it's kind of, um, I'm still a, always a little bit in shock about how I've, my life has managed to come out the way it is. And, and what was the kind of the impulse or the spark uh, for uh food tank and the and the thinking behind it. Yeah, so uh, again, I had, you know, spent a lot of time traveling to the global south. I, I did a lot of work on the growth of factory farming in in Asia and other places, Latin America. I had done a lot of work on gender and population, but my my heart and my expertise is really, you know, on the ground what what farmers are doing, you know, in in places like sub-Saharan Africa. So at that time we were managing a grant around agricultural innovation sort of very broadly and I started a project called Nourishing the Planet at the World Watch Institute and spent about 18 months on the ground with Bernard Pollock, my my co-founder. We traveled to half the continent of Africa, some countries I'd already been to in the past, and really just talked to as many policymakers and farmers and, you know, uh, extension workers and, and, and scientists and others who are working in the field and, and, you know, hearing their thoughts about what it would take to overcome hunger and malnutrition and, you know, what was happening with climate change and all of these things and sort of just collected their thoughts. And, you know, before we we left or embarked on that trip, people had said, you know, you're going to see some really bad things. And like I said, I'd been to Africa before, but I think you know, Sub-Saharan Africa has this very bad reputation where it's all about conflict and disease and hunger and poverty, et cetera. And while we certainly saw those things, we also saw amazing examples of projects that if they had a little bit more investment behind them, a little bit more research behind them, that they could be scaled out and replicated in really cool ways. And so we either, you know, I always say it might have been the worst decision or the best decision I ever made. We, you know, ran up Bernard's uh, credit cards. We cashed in all of my vacation time because I never took vacation at World Watch. And, and we decided to start this nonprofit 
and and see what would happen. And and here we are, seven you know years later, we're still small and scrappy, but you know trying to to amplify the work of organizations and individuals who are really you know committed to making the food system better wherever they live. Yes, I would have said that Food Tank was older than seven years because you definitely kind of punch above your weight and just in terms of influence and the breadth and the scope of things you're working on. And you know, one of the things I love about the Food Tank and what for me is so aligned with what we try to talk about on this podcast, Add Passion and Stir, is just the connection between food and so many things that we care about. And you do that in such a comprehensive way, whether it's farming issues or climate change or labor issues or food insecurity. How do you get your arms around all of this? It's it's uh, such a such a large portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know, <laughs> to be honest. I think we just do it because we're so interested in the voices behind all of these issues, right? So trying to, to you know, these are folks who are honestly telling their own stories. So it's our job to amplify them and it's our job to make the connections and to show people that, you know, whether it's an urban area in the United States or an urban area, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, that they face a lot of the same challenges around access to healthy food and, and you know, being able to afford healthy food like these are things that can transcend geographic and political boundaries. And I, you know, in a very naive sense, maybe sort of showing that we're all in this together and it doesn't matter where we live or who we are, you know, but there's, there's a sort of, if we have collective action around these things, then I think that's where the real change can, can come from. One of the kind of catchphrases that we all use, and I've seen it on your website is that the food system is broken. When, when when food tank says that, what what do they mean? Well, what we mean is that you know you have paradox of of hunger and obesity, for example. Right now, there are about eight hundred twenty million people who are hungry around the world. That will likely double, according to experts, because of COVID nineteen. So that's something to sort of you know be on, uh, on the watch out for. But at the same time, there are about two point one billion people who are overweight or obese, and so there's something wrong if you have just this real. Uh, real clash of of things going on at the same time. And I think what's interesting about that is that often those overweight and obese folks are often malnourished. They're not getting the nutrients that they need. We've we've had a food system that's really been focused on on quantity and not quality. And and we've been really good at filling people up with calories, but not good at nourishing them and making sure that they have well balanced, you know, diets and that, that, you know, the, what they are eating also has, you know, benefits for the environment and for social justice. So that's what we kind of mean, but, you know, I, the food system as it has been built. And and I think what we've seen with COVID, you know, it was, it was built exactly the way it was supposed to, to work, but it's, it's always been fragile, our, our modern food system. And, and now with COVID, we're seeing all of these cracks and all of these things that don't work. And so I think, you know, using this terrible tragedy of, of COVID-19 and, and all of the pain and, and loss that it's caused to really think about ways to transform the food system so that we don't go back to the way things were. I mean, especially for the work that you do to feed so many hungry people, that that shouldn't be happening. That shouldn't be happening in 2020, and it shouldn't have been happening in 1980. And, and I think we have, you know, with this 
with this pandemic, a real opportunity to finally change things. But with, again, that's going to take some collective action and all, all of us working together to get there. Well, I'm, I'm, I want to ask you about that because I feel like what we do at Share Strength and with the No Kid Hungry campaign, there's a piece of the food system, which we're have really honed in on. And that's mostly uh, the inequities exist in terms of how children in this country get fed or don't get fed. And, and we believe that, you know, the programs are in place. One of the good news aspects of this is that the programs are in place to feed kids that we don't have shortages of food or of food programs, whether it's school breakfast or summer meals or SNAP. These exist. That's not the way people should have to get their food and nutrition, but at least there's a, a safety net available there. And I always uh, resist you know, talking about a silver lining in the pandemic because it's so terrible that I don't know that there is a silver lining. But one of the, I guess, countervailing developments for us has been an enormous number of people really understanding for the first time exactly what you were talking about, which is that when the schools closed and people heard about that and saw it on the news, they realized that kids were going to go without meals that they had depended on. They were going to go without breakfast and lunch. And we saw this an enormous surge of generosity, which I thought would be a quick spike and end. It hasn't. 90,000 new individuals found us and have put us in a position where just in the last 10 weeks, we've pumped out about $25 million in grants to close to schools and school districts. We'll do another $35 million, Danny, in just the next 10 weeks so we can help schools kind of reconfigure how they feed kids if kids are only coming two days a week or if they're not coming at all or they're certainly not going to be feeding them in the cafeteria the way they used to. So there's a piece of this that is solvable and that is fixable. And it's it's not easy, but it's not nearly as complex as what you've undertaken, which is, as you said, to kind of use the word transform the food system. I know it's kind of a ridiculous question to ask in uh, 20 <laughs> minutes we have left, but uh, and, and uh, at the risk of you rolling your eyes about like, God, what's wrong with this guy? What goes into that to transforming the food system? What are some of at least at least the major components that we should have on our radar screen? Yeah, first, congratulations on all the great work that you're doing. I think one of the most inspiring things for me to sort of be observing and watching and talking to experts on on our podcast has been with schools and the an amazing way that schools and cafeteria workers and school administrators have really stepped up without a promise of reimbursement of funding for the meals that they're providing to really make sure that that not only students are fed but that their families are fed. Some of my favorite projects, you know, in New York like Harlem Grown and Green Bronx Machine, they've really, you know, with very little funding stepped up to the plate to make sure that that kids are fed and that they're fed in a way that is nutritious and and healthy and, and, you know, sort of life-giving. And it's been really cool to see. And I'm, again, such a huge fan of the work that you do. But I think when we're talking about transforming the food system, you know, I can only talk about what I've I've heard over the last six months by talking to so many experts and and just sort of collecting their thoughts. And I think there are, there are a couple of things that have sort of risen to the top one is this intersection of high and low technology. And, you know, technology has often sort of been dismissed in the food system as like, uh, you know, there's no silver bullet, right? We can't fix everything with technology. And that's completely true. But what COVID has caused, you know, a, on a bigger scale to happen is this use of technology. Farmers markets have had to pivot, you know, farmers themselves who had, you know, 
their clients were restaurants or schools or other big institutions. They had to figure out a way to get their their product directly to consumers. So they you, using a lot of mar- online marketing platforms or drive through um, farmers markets in the early days of COVID to help create a, a space for social distancing. I've been really excited about the the renewed interest in food as medicine and nutrition again. I think we sort of lost that nutrition angle for so many years and that on that focus of of filling people up. But you know, people as diverse as, you know, former US Secretary of Agriculture Dan Glickman and then, you know, food justice advocates like Leah Peniman are all talking about using food as medicine and why that's important. We have a, a population of folks who suffer from diet-related diseases, and they're not able to, you know, sort of battle this virus as well as as folks who, uh, you know, don't have diet-related diseases. So the real focus on food as medicine during the pandemic is something I'm excited about. And the idea that people are... are using food or thinking of food and agriculture as something more political. That's something that's, you know, they they have a say in because they're seeing what's happening to restaurants. They're seeing what's happening to their neighbors who have lost their jobs and are, you know, going to food banks for the first time in their lives. And they want to know what their policymakers and their community leaders are going to do. So this idea that, you know, that's been forming around, uh, you know, a citizen eater or using the food, the food and agriculture community to be a real force for political change. I mean, I think that's one of the, you know, there you're right. There are so few bright spots in this pandemic and and we shouldn't talk about it that way, but I feel like for the first time that we might have this sort of this citizen eater, this person who votes with not only her fork, but with also her vote for the kind of food system we need and want. And and actually, we we don't have a choice. This is not going to be the last disruption that we see in the food and agriculture system worldwide there, you know, we're going to see probably another pandemic a few years down the road, as scary as that seems, but, you know, we sort of opened the doors for that. There are going to be more disruptions from climate change. So we have a lot to sort of get in place so that we can withstand those disruptions. And, and that's going to take a lot of leadership, you know, from school boards all the way to our federal government. Do you think food as medicine is on the path to becoming kind of part of our national fabric. I love the concept. I've heard it for a little while. I, I'm always trying to gauge whether it's catching on in a more mainstream way. Where do you think it stands? Yeah, we had last year when we could still gather, we had a, a briefing on Capitol Hill to sort of create the space for educating staffers and congressional members around this issue. And there was a lot of interest in it. I, and I I think, you know, from both sides, from Republicans and Democrats. So I think, you know, even with that kind of small event on on Capitol Hill, if you're seeing interested in it, I, I think, you know, it will end up gaining more traction. And again, the pandemic is only giving it more traction because we're seeing what's happening to people who have diabetes or cardiovascular disease or any of these other diet related diseases. They're just not doing as well as folks who who don't have them when, you know, to withstand the virus. So I, I think more and more we're going to see some traction around it. Now, a new phrase for me, thanks to you in this conversation is citizen eater, which I had not heard before. Maybe that shows how dated I am, but I love it. Where does it come from? What else does it mean? You described it a little bit in terms of choices that people make. I want to give a shout out to Bob Martin at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health Center for a Livable Future. This is something that he's been working on for a long time, and he uses the term citizen 
medicine eater and another term that I have I can't quite I can't quite remember it. But this idea of somebody who votes with, you know, food and agriculture sort of first and foremost on their mind. You have, you know, lots of people vote on different issues. It's their particular issue, whether it's women's equality or those kinds of things. And I think you're going to see more and more people who who vote, you know, for or against the, the food system that they want or do not want. And I, I think that's going to become critical. I mean, you know, we've seen earlier with the debates among uh, folks who are running for the Democratic nomination, you, you know, it was one of the first times in, in history that I saw, you know, presumptive candidates using words like soil and climate change and farmer. And so I, I think there's more of a political traction around farming and agriculture and food in this country. So hopefully that will continue. And again, I think COVID is just sort of reinforcing it. Well, you know, as you're talking about voting yesterday, of course, was John Lewis's funeral. And he had asked uh, the New York Times to publish an essay of his on the day of his funeral. And one of the things he said in that essay is, you know, when you see something that's not right, you must say something, you must do something. Democracy is not a state. It's an act. And each generation must do its part to help build what we call the beloved community. He said, ordinary people with extraordinary vision can redeem the soul of America. Voting and participation in the democratic process are key. The vote is the most powerful nonviolent change agent you have in a democratic society, and you must use it because it is not guaranteed. You can lose it. So, so glad to hear you talking about that. John Lewis's words have been on my mind and your words about the importance of a citizen eater exercising that right to vote. Is that something that Food Tank will promote? And the reason I ask that is at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign, we're getting very active on voter registration and get out the vote. And a lot of nonprofits don't understand, uh, and a lot of our own partners don't understand that that's an entirely appropriate and expressly permitted activity, as long as it's nonpartisan. It's not about getting out the vote for one side or the other. Is that something that is part of the mission of Food Tank? It is now. I mean, I think if you'd asked me six months ago, we would have said, you know, no, we'll we'll leave that to the folks who know how to do it better than us. But I I think it has to become part of our mission. And this is something we've been talking about, you know, when I give talks or or, or, you know, uh, we do podcasts like this one is like, it, it's, it's great to vote with your fork. It's great to vote with your consumer dollar, but it's never going to be enough. You have to vote with your actual vote to, to make the kind of food system you want and to make the kind of democracy you want. And I think what John Lewis said about getting into good trouble is, you know, probably more along the lines of like what Food Tank and you all do. We, you want to get into some good trouble so that we can see the, what, what, you know, how that unites people, how that creates the change we all, we all need. You know, it's not just the change we want to see anymore. It's the change we need to make this democracy a working one again. You know, we, we've talked about a broken food system, but we have a broken democracy right now. And any, no matter, you know, if you're a Democrat or Republican, you can see that things aren't working the way they should in this democracy. And I think it's time to fix it. So what else can the average person do? Kind of what's the call to call to action? I feel like you're the most, one of the most persuasive people literally in the world on, on this set of issues. And it's so tough though, because when I think about the food system, I think it's so large and I'm going to vote with my fork and I'm going to vote at the ballot box. Or when I think about like, it's like when I think about climate change, right? Is it really going to make a difference if I, you know, do this with solar or don't fly as much? How should the average person think about 
their role and responsibility when it comes to the food system? Yeah, I mean, I think when I I get overwhelmed by it all, climate change boggles my mind, you know, all of these things are so sort of overwhelming. So it's, it's, it's step by step, it's doing what you can, especially right now, you know, it's, it's hard to volunteer, but there's lots of ways you can volunteer uh, over the phone. You know, it's, it's, you know, seems like another chore to, uh, you know, compost or, you know, buy the ugly apples at the farmer's market instead of the pristine ones so that, you know, we don't contribute to food waste. It's just doing what you can. And it's, you know, whether it's sharing a meal safely by bringing it to your neighbors, all of these things that like we, I think, I mean, I think we forgot a little bit of kindness until COVID. And I think part of what we want to change is, you know, bringing back that kindness to the food system, bringing back that generosity, bringing back sort of, you know, caring about your community and your neighborhood again. And it's it's difficult right now, but I think that's part of how this political process changes. It's getting involved and, you know, with with what what's happening right around you and and trying to figure out where you fit in and and where your spot for change is one of the things i read about you and you you alluded to when we first started talking is that you've traveled to 70 countries which i really love because i i always feel that one of the most important things any of us can do as individuals is to just what i call bear witness to go and to see things and let them impact you and touch you and in turn, try and touch other people. But it also made me really, really envious because I'm with my family. I'm no longer able to travel that way. Are you still doing that? Are you still out there? What's what pre-COVID? What's it like? Like I am grounded. <laughs> I am grounded. It's been the one of the most sort of, I, I don't want to even say humbling, but I don't know how else to say it. I mean, my, my husband is an agricultural economist and he often works in Southern Africa. And I, you know, was on the road almost 200 days last year. And just to be sort of grounded and to be in a space like I'm, you know, it, it's been really sort of profoundly disruptive to how I lived my life before I had a whole sort of, you know, work schedule and, you know, 14 hour plane rides were nothing to me. And, you know, I I knew exactly what I was going to do in each airport, you know, whether it was in the United States or in a foreign country. But I, you know, I, I, it's, uh, I think what we've been able to do with the live cast that we do almost every day is make that interaction. So I'm not in the field literally, but I'm talking to the people who are trying to, you know, make change, whether it's economists at the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations or uh, nutritionists in Kenya or dairy farmers here in the U.S. I've really tried to keep as connected as possible. So it's kept me sane. And I also was able to have a like a real garden for the first time in many years because both me and my husband are here and we can maintain it. So it's also been kind of rewarding and, and reminded me like, you know, a little bit about getting back to my roots. Yeah, I think I guess our families both have joined the, the ranks of many now. It's almost a cl- cliche, but we did the same thing for the first time in our life. We have a, you know, a box garden on the ground and are growing all of our own spinach and arugula and kale and peas and carrots. And it's just like a whole different thing. <laughs> you know, it's just like a way of living. And I was, you know, I was at about, I don't know, 200 to 275 flights a year for the last 15 years, mostly domestic. And I, you know, COVID or no COVID, vaccine or no vaccine, I don't see going back to that level of travel, having learned some of the pleasures of sitting still a little bit and 
being able to work pretty effectively from here. Danny, tell us about your podcast, Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg. How did you decide to do it? What's been fun about it? I know from Add Passion and Stir why I like to do it because I get to talk to people like you, but where did it come from and what are your plans for it? Yeah, we started in 2018 and we were able to do, uh, when we were having live uh, conversations, live summits, live food talks, we would also put those on the podcast. But I think it, again, it's been sort of my saving grace. My it, it has maintained my sanity during this. What we've we've been able to do with Food Talk Live is have actual live casts that you know we uh, put on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, etc., and then also turn the, you know edit those down and put them into a podcast that you can listen to while you're you know bicycling or while you're on the elliptical. And it's it's been really gratifying to hear from all these experts who are you know they're grappling with COVID, they're grappling with how to keep their businesses alive, their food businesses alive, they're grappling with climate change, but they're also putting like a positive spin and, and doing all the things, you know, to tell folks like, you know, here's, here's, uh, you know, a nutritious recipe you can make for, you know, under $2, or here's, you know, uh, an article you can read that'll be inspiring. It's just like folks who are, we, uh, we interviewed the Agricultura Network earlier this week, and they're a, a farmer owned brokerage in New Mexico. And like Helga Garza, who runs it, she was taking me around with her mask around the production facility about how they're filling these CSA baskets for folks and, you know, how much food they're able to donate and how they've been able to, you know, keep the farmers who work with them in business. So it's just like, be, you know, so exciting to watch all of these projects unfold and still thrive during this really chaotic time. So again, it's kept me sane. It's been my um, the, the greatest gift that Food Tank has given me, I think. Well, I would say I'd, I'd have the same experience at Passion and Stir has been the same for us. So Food Talk with Danny Nirenberg, I urge people to listen to it. I, as I mentioned, I listened to a bunch of them. It's really worthwhile. You learn a ton and it's just fun as well. You make it fun. So congrats on that. We've got to wrap up, but I was going to ask you kind of a... I guess the unfair question would be, aside from us both gardening and our and not traveling as much, if there were a change to come out of the pandemic, kind of what would you want it to be? And knowing what we both know from having done this work for a while, that there's no one silver bullet that fixes these problems. What is the, what's the one thing that if you could wave a wand, you would want to happen to benefit our our food system in the long term? A big thing for me, I, I think, has been watching how regular eaters have sort of reacted to the difficulties that farm workers and food workers face. And so I'm talking about everyone who works in meat processing facilities, to the folks who are the line cooks at restaurants, to you know uh, farm workers and fields who make sure that we all can eat. I think the the sort of curtain has been lifted on the conditions that those folks have faced. So I feel like at least the American public can't unsee what they've seen. And I think again, that, you know, that they don't want people to suffer to get food on their plate. They want people, you know, to, to have, you know, rewarding lives and rewarding jobs. And I, I think a, a big change for me would be, you know, to make sure that folks vote in a way that protects farm and food workers from, from now on. And I, I think we're going to see that. Wow. I can't think of a better one. Thank you for suggesting that. And I hope that you are right. That would be powerful. Danny, thank you so much. We've been talking to Danny Nuremberg, the co-founder of Food Tank and the winner of this year's Julia Child Award, which is a really big deal in the space where we work and live. And Danny, I hope that post-COVID, 
we find the time to sit down over some good food and continue this conversation or that we get you back on the podcast because there's so much to talk about and you bring such a fresh and important voice to it. It's really, really been a treat to have you on Add Passion and Stir. Oh, thanks so much, Billy. I'm your biggest fan. Thanks for everything you do. Well, thanks. And thanks to our producer, Paul Woodle, uh, and District Productive for producing this podcast and the team at Share Our Strength and the No Kid Hungry campaign. You can go to addpassionandstir.com and find other episodes. You can rate them and rank them and subscribe. And we hope you will. Thanks for listening. I'm Billy Shore.